Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. In the process of drafting this introduction, my team and I have all been ruminating over who Jane Fonda is. But maybe, after so much research and prep, the real question might better be, who isn't Jane Fonda? She's been Henry's daughter, Barbarella, Clute's Bree Daniels, Hanoi Jane, and Mrs. Vadim, Hayden, and Turner. She's been an actor, a radical, a writer, a mother, an Oscar winner, and a visionary fitness guru. And now, as Fonda glides freely into her eighth decade, with a mega-hit of a TV show and even more protest arrests under her belt, the answer to that unanswerable riddle could be this. Jane Fonda is an icon. Though she was born to Hollywood royalty as the daughter of Henry Fonda and Canadian socialite Frances Brokaw, her childhood wasn't so starry. And if you've watched 2019's mesmerizing HBO documentary, Jane Fonda in Five Acts, inspired by her 2005 memoir, you would know how profoundly those early years have shaped her. At 12, Fonda's mother died by suicide while undergoing inpatient psychiatric treatment. And later that same year, Henry, already, as she tells it, an emotionally withholding parent, remarried a woman 23 years his junior. On the precipice of adulthood, Fonda began modeling, a career path that triggered a decades-long struggle with bulimia. At 21, she connected with legendary acting coach Lee Strasberg in his class where he deemed she had real talent, and her life, as we know it, took form. Her breakout role was in 1965's Cat Ballou, and a few years after that, she starred in Sidney Pollock's 1969 classic, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, a role that would help define her as a serious actress. It was in 1971 that Fonda would take on a role that would visually break her from her bombshell Barbarella past, Alan Pakula's Clute where she portrays Brie Daniels, a sex worker making sense of her identity during a time of heightened political paranoia and social unrest. Pakula also directed the award-winning All the President's Men, based on the Washington Post's exposure of Watergate. Her shaggy chic haircut needed its own agent, Fonda says, and it became the now iconic style that made Fonda's first mugshot so era-defining, her fist raised high, urging us all, more than 40 years ago, to resist. There's more, of course, a lot more. The husbands, the years of protesting Vietnam, the films that pushed the envelope on tough topics like the 1980s dark comedy, Nine to Five, which exposed hints of Me Too and eventually led to the Office Workers' Bill of Rights. There's her period as a super fitness entrepreneur, releasing five best-selling books and 22 exercise videos over 13 years to raise money for political causes. And when she left her third husband, billionaire media mogul Ted Turner, in 2001, it was because, quote, if I stayed, I would never be authentic. Because Jane Fonda wasn't done. And she still isn't. To follow Fonda is to see something we don't ordinarily see. A working woman of a certain age who has been candid about everything from her politics, to her looks, to her own perceived shortcomings as a mom. And 35 years after 9 to 5, She's reunited with her co-star, Lily Tomlin, to star in Netflix's hit series, Grace and Frankie, now in production for its seventh season and the longest-running series on Netflix to date. 
She is proof that life for women really can and does get better, more interesting, and more fulfilling no matter where we are in our lives, no matter how many times we have to start over again. Most recently, she's opened the door to her inconceivable sixth act, or perhaps a return to her first, with her Fire Drill Friday protests, drawing attention to the impending climate crisis and expanding global sunrise movement. Photos of Fonda being arrested have once again earned her viral fame, as well as a renewed obsession with this notorious trailblazer from a new generation of changemakers. Because that's what Jane Fonda does. That's who she is. Now, at 82, Jane is still a living example of what it means to be awake and authentic. And for us, that is an icon. Jane Fonda, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on Unstyle today. And I'm honored to be here. Thanks. I am super nervous, only because there's so many layers of, of things that I want to talk with you about. It's important to give a little bit of background. We're here at The Wing in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. So it's going to sound a little bit different than the podcast usually sounds. There might be some background noise, but we're going to deal with it and it's going to be great. And it's going to add to deal the atmosphere of this conversation. Right. But we're here today because you were speaking in front of 300 plus people, but also everyone that was watching online about Fire Drill Fridays and talking to an incredible woman who has a lot of experience in the climate crisis. Can you name her? Her name is Lauren Davis, and I've only known her, I think I've met her twice, but I listened, we had a big meeting at my house about a week ago with all of the grassroots climate activist leaders of organizations that have been working on these, this issue, and specifically in California. Many of them live in the communities that are impacted. She works on the energy program of the Schmidt Family Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know who she was. And she doesn't look like a nerd, right? She's kind of cute. And she was really deep. And she was kind of even spiritual. And I was utterly fascinated by her. You can tell it's a calling with her. Yeah. And then I met her one more time, and that was all confirmed. So when I was told that I was doing this here today, and I didn't get home from work till 2 in the morning, so I needed all the help I could get. So I asked her if she would be my co you know, conversationalist, and I was really glad she said Which yes. Which I'm sure she was thrilled to do. She was, yeah. There's Anything to get the word out. There's a really great chemistry between the two of you, and there's so much going on in, in your world with Grace and Frankie and a new season, and you're in production right now, but tell me why Fire Drill Fridays is such an important initiative for you right now and how it connects to everything that you've been doing for for decades. I think it's important to understand that the climate crisis isn't like well, that's one issue you could work on. You could work on women's empowerment. That's another issue. You could work on anti-war stuff. Hanging over every single aspect of our lives is this umbrella, which is the climate crisis. It's going to impact everything. And it impacts the question of war. It impacts the question of women empowerment. It impacts health, you know, everything. I remember the day after the election of 2016 when you know who was elected and I just wanted to like bury myself but I had to go to Atlanta with Gloria Steinem to speak to 1600 women and I remember Gloria said oh my god you know but 
okay, it'll be four years, and then we'll, and I said, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't have four years to lose because of the climate crisis. Although she has been aware and has been a climate activist, but she was thinking of the women's aspect. But it's really everything. So I've been a climate activist for a long time, and I've made all the sort of personal lifestyle changes. I drive an electric car. I'm getting rid of single-use plastic in my household. And, you know, there are these great bags that are made out of honey, hemp, all kinds of things that are recyclable instead of plastic. But I know that that's not enough. Even if we all did that, and it's important to do it because it's hard to be a climate activist unless you're walking the talk. But it can't be scaled up fast enough to address the crisis. So I wanted to do more. And I read a book by Naomi Klein, which I really highly recommend to everybody who's listening. Naomi Klein, it's called On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. And I love her writing, and so I got an advanced copy. And that day I was going up to Big Sur with my pals, Catherine Keener and and Rosanna Arquette, and I started reading the book, and 30 pages in, I started to shake. And I knew what I had to do, because I'd been really depressed, because I wasn't doing enough. I, you know, when you're famous, the responsibility is huge to use your platform. So I knew, and I, I picked up the phone. It was not easy, actually, because there's no signal in most of Big Sur. <laughs> you have to kind of walk around and find, <laughs> oh, here. And so I called Annie Leonard, who is the director of Greenpeace USA. And I said, Annie, I'm going to move to DC for a year and camp out in front of the White House and protest. And she said, well, that's really great, Jane, except that it's illegal. You can't do that. So then we got on a conference call with Bill McKibben, co-founder of 350.org, and and. Naomi Klein, who's a friend of mine, and what we decided every Friday, if the youth, if the young climate protesters inspired by Greta, who've been protesting every Friday, the Sunrise Movement, the Fridays for Future Movement, you know, and they've been there every Friday for over a year, and if they will agree to letting me join them, then let's do that every Friday, and And I said, I want it to be like a teach-in. Every Friday, I want to focus on a different aspect to show the intersectionality of of this. Yeah, And then we'll have a march, and we'll engage in civil disobedience and risk getting arrested. And we had no idea if it was going to gain traction. And within a couple of weeks, we thought, holy cow, we have really tapped into something. People started coming from all over the country people who had never done this before, which was exactly the people we wanted to target. You know, how many people do you think belong to the NRA? Um, 50 million? Four million. Really? Four, a, just four, that's four right. million? That's right. Four million. And it's a powerful organization. You know why? They're organized. But there are, according to the Yale scientist. Tony Lacerowitz, there are 25 million people who are really concerned about climate, but nobody's asked them to do anything about it. There are 13 million Americans who would engage in civil disobedience if anybody asked them. Well, Fire Drill Fridays is asking them. And so our goal is to organize these people who are concerned but haven't stepped over that line into activism. And what I found out is that it's transformative. People really feel changed, and they kept coming back. The first Friday, it was 16 people got arrested. The final Friday, it was 340. <laughs> it, was, it was just amazing. It was amazing, and I met most of them and got a chance to talk to them. And they were just like, this is different. I feel different. 
and they kept coming back. I think you said something, Chelsea and I were sitting next to each other, and we were both writing things down at the same time, but you said, when you align your body with your deepest values, you know, that's when you can change. And I was thinking a lot about that, but I also think something that you spoke about in the documentary, Jane Fonda and Five Acts, I think it was an early interview you did with Dick Cavett, where you talked about you're in a perpetual state of revolution, if you're really, truly conscious, and kind of honoring that. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a different one because it requires such urgency. We have a very finite amount of time before there is a point of no return. Since you have been doing this your whole life, how do you think people can awaken that revolution inside of themselves if it's not something that's familiar to them, if it's not something that's encouraged or accepted or even represented in their lives? Yeah, you know, when I said that perpetual revolution thing or <laughs> that's in the documentary, I was about 50 years younger. <laughs> I think reading, you know, like read Naomi Klein's book. I'm going to say the name again, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Read, read environmental magazines, find out. You know, there's all the things that we can see, mm -hmm. the melting glaciers, the storms, the droughts, yes. the fires. But like I didn't know until I started the Fire Drill Fridays and we focused on oceans one of the Fridays, I, that the oceans provide 50% of our oxygen. I thought it was forests. It's a huge amount. The capacity for the ocean to provide us with that oxygen is starting to disappear because photoplankton is starting to be destroyed with the acidification of the oceans and the warming of the oceans. You can't see that. You don't know that's happening. You know, there's just so many things that we can't see that yeah. are going on that are going to impact our ability to have water that we can drink, to have food that we can eat, to have air that we can breathe. So the more that we can learn about this, I think the more we'll be prepared to do whatever is in our particular wheelhouse. It can be just talking about it with our family, with our friends, with our colleagues. It can be how we vote. Voting is utterly critical. We have to vote. And I hope that people will understand that we have to vote with the climate in our hearts, with nature in our hearts, because we have, as you've said, very little time. We have, according to the scientists, about 10 years. We have a decade to do something that's more difficult than humankind has ever done in its history, which is cutting fossil fuel emissions by 50%. We're a fossil fuel economy. And we're saying we have to cut our carbon in half. That's huge. And the reason that I'm doing this in California now is because California is such a huge oil producer that if we can do it here, it's going to send a signal that will rock around the world. I just learned that in the conversation that you just had. I'm shocked to hear that because there's so many principles of California and the culture here that are so antithetical to that. You know, there's so in contradiction to that. Yeah. It's no, there's so a huge surprising. schism between the narrative of California being so out front environmentally. And we are in terms of the demand side, mm -hmm. but not in the supply side. We haven't really, like Jerry Brown, for all his progressive policies, he would not touch the fossil fuel industry. Because of the oil industry. Yeah, yeah. and gas. Nobody could ever quite figure out how come, but he refused to stop issuing permits for new wells. 
you mentioned you have a six-month-old grandson. I have a 16-month-old daughter. And my husband and I, my husband's an architect, and the two of us are kind of reimagining our careers and how we can serve in this world in a way that is going to foster her life experience. Do you, is this something that you talk openly about with your family? And has it become just second nature in terms of just like this becoming like a part of like everything that all of you do? Yeah. My daughter, who lives in Vermont with my two grandkids, Mm -hmm. came down, got arrested three times. My grandkids got arrested. One of them is 17, so she was taken to juvie hall. It is a family affair. Yeah, I think it has to be, but that's what I'm feeling. My husband's thinking of completely changing the tract of the the kind of architecture he does because of how many sort of migratory communities there are going to be. We're going to need temporary housing. We're going to need passive housing. That's right. The whole issue of architecture and urban planning can play a massive role. It's exciting. In the future. It's very, very exciting. I mean... Think of the jobs that could be provided with retrofitting already existing housing, not to mention building housing that's resilient. Because, you know, for the rest of mine, certainly mine, and probably your lifetime, it's all going to get worse. The question is, will it stop before the tipping point? But it's going to get worse. And we don't have the infrastructure that has the resilience to withstand it. So architects can build homes and tall buildings that will help with the resilience of our communities. Yes, and create jobs. Right. I mean, pipe fitters. Pipes are pipes. They don't necessarily have to bring oil from the tar sands down to San Diego. Pipes could bring good water in Flint, Michigan. Pipes could do all kinds of positive things. Wind turbines use pipes. Just a question of changing the training, you know? Yeah. Is it okay if we switch gears a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So I had a child pretty late in life and I had the the magic of being at home with her being in the middle of the night watching your documentary that documentary I told Chelsea I might cry at like two points and um, this is one of them and I think something that you brought up in in that documentary first of all thank you for it why did it affect you that way I think because you talked about things in that documentary that made me want to start a media company I think that there are so many parts of women's lives that we have to hide and that we can't we can't share openly because it will make us seem weak and I think the particularly the part about parenting it was that I didn't have to be a perfect mother mm-hmm. I'd never seen anybody else in a documentary with your kind of achievements and the kind of establishment that you have created and the, the vast body of work that you have, talk about something like that openly. And I felt, I felt so seen because of that. Mm. Oh, that makes me feel good, yeah. Yes, and you didn't hide the fact that it was difficult to talk about. I would just love to talk a little bit about that documentary and just how it, how it came together and you know, what, how you felt about it. Well, you know, I have to say that there was nothing in the documentary or nothing I said in the documentary that I hadn't written about. So for me, it was, it was just a different version of my memoir because it was filmed. But I love my life so far, by the way. Yeah, that was the important thing for me was my life so far. I had just left a 10-year marriage with Ted Turner that was a very, very hard thing because I loved him. But I knew that if I stayed with him that I would never become whole And I knew, I had realized when I turned 60, which I considered the beginning of my third act, 
that I did not want to die without becoming whole. And so two years later, when I thought, oh my God, I think I'm gonna have to leave, and I was so scared because I was already 62 and I didn't have a career for 15, you know, for a long time, and what was I gonna do? But I thought, you know, the most important thing is I don't wanna have regrets. If I stay with him, I won't be able to become who I, who I can be. But it was really hard, and when I left, and I started to th look back over my life, because you, in order to know how you wanna go forward in the last part of your life, you have to know where you've been. You know, as I say in the book, I didn't wanna be like Christopher Columbus, who didn't know where he was going when he left, didn't know where he was when he got there, and didn't know where he'd been when he got back. So I studied my first two acts, and then I realized I need to write this down, because it was a gendered journey. And so for me, the important thing was the, was the six years that it took me to write that book. And I really, I made the decision that I was gonna tell the truth. And it was not necessarily pretty. About you or the people that me, you wrote about? About me. You know, a, friends of mine said, God, you know, you've been privileged all your life. You're famous and, all, you know, what, what have you got to say that can be relevant to most people? But I knew when women tell the truth, it's universal. So I knew that if I really told the truth about my journey, that other people would, would relate to it. And so for the, do the documentary was a filmed version of that. I have watched it at least 11 or 12 times. Oh God, and there was so much left out of it. <laughs> well, I'd like to see uh, that one too. <laughs> the documentary is in five acts, and I remember the first time I saw it, I, I, I thought it was really smart to give each mm -hmm. of the men in your life that defined you at a certain you know, phase of your mm -hmm. life, and mm -hmm. then we get to you, we get to you, and I think that, I think that it's been, I think that that's just how women are conditioned to feel like we have to be defined by the quality of our relationship, mm -hmm. and because it's how people see us on the outside, and it's just so wrong. I just, I think the, the, the important thing to know is, first of all, it's so hard to be young, <laughs> and, and everybody who's young and finds it hard thinks it's their fault. But it's just really hard because it's all about what am I supposed to know? Who do I need to know? What, am I wa what do I want to be? What do I have to do to get there? Just all of these questions. I was so old at 20. I was ancient at 20. I'm 82 now. I am so young. And that's the truth. So it's hard to be young. And especially if you're a woman, it's hard to be <laughs> leading up to 50. It's really tough. Are you 50? I'm 51. Boy, you look about 18. That's interesting. Um, Did we get that on tape? <laughs> perimenopause is a big reason I'm why it's hard. Yeah. That's why I'm going to take my coat off and put it's it back very, on again Yeah, I noticed that. Perimenopause is really tough. I, I blamed it on my second husband, but I think it was mostly peri perimenopause. You totally lose a sense of who you are. I've written about it. I wrote a book called Primetime. I called it The Fertile Void. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You feel like you're f- falling with no net underneath you. But it is a critical time when you want to stay close to the wall, you want to be careful who you spend time with, you want to be careful to the music you listen to, you want to really take care of yourself, don't be with people that are going to lead you astray or be jarring, because that is the time when, unbeknownst to you, little green sprouts are starting to bloom. And you want to be quiet enough to pay attention so that you nurture them when they start to happen. I mean, it's like, but it's a very hard time to live through. All of the research, and there's been huge amounts of research, shows that after 50, life gets better for most people. Whether you're married or divorced or man or woman or straight or gay, life gets better because you kind of been there, done that. You know what you can leave behind. That's why getting older gets much, much easier because you've been there, because you, you, know, you don't make mountains out of molehills. You know how to make lemonade out of lemons, all those things. Can I tell you, I think also for me, I feel like it means more because I feel like I have less time. And you don't want to waste any time. You don't want to waste any time having bullshit relationships yeah. in your life. Or drinking too much. Like, I don't drink too much. Because if I drink, like, more than one martini, or even one martini, I lose about five See, hours well, the next day. See, Grace makes me really want to drink martinis more. She really does. I'm sorry. It's okay. They seem refreshing. They seem medicinal, almost. So <laughs> it's, um, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> I agree with you, but unfortunately, there's still an incredible bias against women in middle age, and I think that finally, we have so many more. I mean, thank you to, to J-Lo for having a huge bash for her 50th birthday. You are like evidence of the fact that life just keeps getting better and more important and more relevant and more urgent and more active and, and just more full. Well, the trick is you have to stay curious. You know, you have to not, at some point along the way, think, okay, this is where I am. This is now who I am and where I'm going to be. You have to constantly put yourself in situations that you're learning and you're exposed to new things and new ideas and new people, even if it's through books. I mean, books have always changed my life. But keep learning. You know, one of my mantras is it's more important to be interested than to be interesting. Stop worrying about being interesting. Stay curious. People say I'm young for my age. It's because I'm curious. I learn things all the time. And that informs my life. So my life is constantly evolving and changing. You know, my children don't like it very much. Like, you know, Do you I, really think that's true? Yeah. I mean, because you're busy and you're my, not around my, as my much. My son and his wife, you know, they're 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 in their 40s and they just had their first baby and then I grandma goes to DC. And they think that means that I don't care that I have a new little grandchild. But I feel like I'm trying to save the future for my grandchild. You know what I mean? But, you know, your kids may not like what you do all the time. But you have to do what you have to do.
talk a little bit about nine to five? Sure. I was listening to Dolly Parton's podcast on WNYC radio, and there's a really great episode which features you and talking about nine to five and and how you recognized her as being perfect for this role. But I think that what I was thinking about in preparation for this conversation with you is just how how sort of prescient you were about so many things, talking about them, actively making art around things that were important that people weren't necessarily talking about in the zeitgeist at that time. Well, I wasn't prescient. I just have good friends. You have great friends. During the anti-war movement, one of the women that was part of it with me is Karen Nussbaum. And her day job was organizing women office workers. And every time I'd see her, she'd tell me stories. And so I said, one day, I've got to make a movie about this. And that's how it happened. And now, then after that, she founded Working America, which is the organization that I was talking about today that I canvass with out in the middle of the country, knocking on doors and talking to Trump voters. But you were so smart because something that you talked about on that episode on Dolly Parton's podcast was about how you wanted to frame the film as a comedy, as almost as a farce, because you were too afraid that people wouldn't come to see it if it was too serious, if it was too dark. Yeah, well, you have to, you know, just make a documentary if you want to do that. But if you want to make a movie of an issue, you have to find the proper container. You know, like uh, Coming Home, which was a serious movie about what Vietnam veterans were facing when they came home. Okay, so we figured it'll be a real sexy love story. Nine to Five was a comedy. China Syndrome was a suspense, a thriller. So even people who didn't agree with us on the nuclear energy issue mm-hmm. would have got, wanted to see the movie because it was a good thriller, you know? Yeah. Something else I was re-watching, Clute. I didn't realize that that was, you know, from kind of watching it, and, and also my husband's such a huge Alan Pakula fan, and, mm-hmm. and we watched them as a trilogy, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, and Clute. Mm-hmm. There's you in this, in this sort of like, you know, trio of really, really important films that were made at a certain time when government paranoia was at such a fever pitch. What was it like making Clute? It was really one of the first depictions, a positive depiction of a sex worker. It was great. No, I loved it. It was the fr- I made three movies with Alan Pakula. That was the first one. <sighs> and he was, you know, it, everything about the movie, the direction, the acting, the sound, the, the cinematography. The music is so creepy in I that movie. I know. It's so creepy. I know. <laughs> Your apartment. I remember thinking, like, I wonder how much that apartment, how much the rent would be in that apartment now because you had so this gorgeous I asked skylight. Him, I asked him to create a, on the soundstage the set where I could actually live there. It had a flush toilet and everything. Oh. And so I, before we started shooting, I, I lived there. And, you know, I would get stoned, and I would... That was what made me decide that I wanted a cat, and I decided the pictures that would be up on the on the refrigerator. It was her safe place. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I did a lot of research. I hung out with call girls and hookers and, and madams, and it was wonderful. It was great. But I think that his style at that time was really about kind of creating this mystery and depth in characters, like the haircut that you got during, you know, for Clute. I didn't get it for Clute. No, you didn't get it for Clute. You got it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two sides of it that I was hoping to talk with you about. One was that it was this sort of personal kind of stance about, like, you know, this is who I am now. And you didn't even really know what that was when you went into the barber, right? No. I had no <laughs> idea. I knew I had... Um, 
I, I, was, uh, I was married to my first husband, Roger Vedin, the French director who directed Barbarella. I still had a Barbarella hairdo. And Which was long, flowing, kind of like blonde locks. As someone said to me, your, your hair deserved a, an agent of its own. It was a lot of hair. <laughs> a lot of hair. So anyway, I was going through a major transition, and whenever that happens, and it's happening to me right now, and you will soon see my epif- hair epiphany. I have hair epiphanies. and We uh, all do. Yeah. You oh. just actually put it, you gave it a term that we needed to know about. <laughs> I mean, it does come out of our heads. So if we're going through transitions, it makes sense that things that are coming out of our heads are going to reflect the transition. So I went to my husband. I knew that I just, I wanted to have different hair. And I went to my husband's barber, Paul McGregor, in the village, and I said, do something. And then I started reading, and I paid no attention to what he was doing. And when I looked up, it was the Clute haircut. And then it became iconic, because after Clute was over, I got arrested as I started an anti-war tour of the country, and that mugshot became an iconic mug. Yeah. Yes. We have coasters in our house with your, face, with your, <laughs> with your mugshot on them, and we're very proud to use them. Okay. Grace and Frankie. So it is now the longest-running series on Netflix. Congratulations. Thank you. It is a really, really special show for a million different reasons. And I think we have Rebecca Smith, who is our VP of Editorial Operations. She and Samra Dara, who oversees our social media, they took off like last Friday, two Fridays ago, to actually go home and completely watch the whole most recent season. That is how these young women are spending their free time, taking a vacation date so they can watch you and watch the show because it means so much to them. We did not expect There is something so unique and special about the fact that this show has struck a chord with so many different What do you think it is? generations. Okay. This this can be a very unpopular thing to say. But I think that somehow, some way, it doesn't matter how great your relationship is, I think that we all secretly dream about just living with our girlfriends someday. Mm -hmm. I think it's why people used to make fun of the Golden Girls but secretly loved it because they could just be themselves. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to keep pretending. Mm -hmm. Well, like this last season, the sixth season that's now Mm -hmm. streaming, you know, Grace makes this whole, you know, Frankie convinces Grace that in order to make the marriage work, it has to be real. You know, she has to tell Nick the truth. And yet, when she's too old to be able to stand up from the toilet and ends up t- tearing the, the, the toilet, toilet paper, paper holder out of the wall when she tries to use that yeah. to get her off it, she doesn't tell her, fine, Nick, everything's fine, just fine. It's Frankie, she calls, to come and rescue her. It's Frankie that she will allow to see who she really is and how old she really is and so forth. And that's just very real. I, I personally also think that the fact that they went through this just unimaginable trauma, after 40 years of marriage, their husbands tell them that they're not only gay, but that they've fallen in love with each other and want to get married. I mean, just think. Talk about rug being pulled out from under you. What does it mean about who I am that for all these years I didn't know that my husband was gay and having an affair? With, with his law partner. 
And you know, and we, and then so Frankie and I are left together, and we hate each other. We're completely the opposite. So the fact that we not only survived, but that we ended up thriving because we helped each other. I think that so many women write me or just come up and tell me that it's given them hope, that it's helped them come through trauma, that it's shown them the way forward. I mean, it just means the world to me. You know, when we're filming it, it doesn't seem like it's going to be something that will affect women's lives. But I think that that's the point. It's not this sort of thunder and lightning. It's like these very subtle moments yeah. of intimacy. All of you are so masterful in each of your roles. But it's really fun to do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in love with Lily Tomlin. There are so many times when <laughs> no. just I look at her face and it's just, <laughs> she just... What mm, is, I just love her. What is it like to to be working with her and to have this kind of show to share in and be producing and to just be changing the the sort of the narrative? Well, we didn't expect that that would be the case, and we don't feel like it's the case. I mean, when we're doing it, we're not sort of thinking we're changing the narrative. You know, we're just doing it, and the fact that we know that it's a hit is like so great. Especially when you're working 17 hours. I mean, it helps to know that it's successful. Imagine having to do that if you're in a flop. Is it 17 hours straight? Not always, but it has happened. I mean, last night, I came home at 2 in the morning. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's long hours. But we all love each other so much. You know, Lily and I have been friends since I got her cast in 9 to 5. And, you know, she comes from Detroit. And her little face is just plastic. I mean, she has her expressions just drive me. But then, you know, when I'm doing activist work in Michigan, I, she comes with me, and we do stuff together, and we've done stuff stuff together all over the country. I mean, that has nothing to do with Grace and Frankie. Well, I think that there is a, a really special magic between the two of you, and also, I think it's yes, you've given so many people hope, but I also think that. The show really, it, it's sort of proof that our lives will continue to get better if we're engaged, if we're like sort of paying attention, and also tragedy will befall all of us in different ways. And It's, it's how like, you handle it. It's how you it's handle it. It's not what is done to you in life, it's what you do with it yes. that matters. Yeah. yeah. By the way, you know that the entire writer's room and all the cast <laughs> of Grace and Frankie have been arrested with me. They all came to D.C. and got arrested. It's a prerequisite. <laughs> To work on the and show. And I didn't even ask them. They just came. Well, because I think that just by virtue of you being you and caring about the things that you care about, I'm sure it's just, it's hard not to want to participate in, in that. Can we talk about Paula Weinstein? Yeah. There's something in the documentary, you refer to her as your best friend, and I loved everything that she said about you in the documentary, too. And I saw that she was a producer on Grace and Frankie as well. What do you think has been, like, you know, the secret to your long friendship with her? It's important that she's Jewish, and here's why. (laughs) I come from a very uptight, waspy, repressed, humorless family of depressed people, okay? She's cozy, and she's tactile, and she's loving, and she's, she's the, you know, I have not been a very good mother, but she has to my kids. She is often, the, by default, the mother that they go to 
for advice and help. So for me, she's both the person who understands my kids better than I do, or tells me what I have to do that I'm not doing, or tell, tells them who I am. She's also the person that helps me figure out what drapes should go in my living room. She's also the person She's who so universal. I talk <laughs> politics with. You know, her, the, the reason I know her is because when I first became an activist and I had to raise money for the GI office in Washington, D.C. that I started, someone said, well, the first person you should go to is Hannah Weinstein. I didn't, you know, Hannah Weinstein, she's a producer. So she agreed to see me, and I went to her very luxurious apartment in New York, and she was this small woman, and she gave me $2,000, which at the time was huge. And then about four years later, she called me up on the phone, and she said, and she was a communist, I think. Mm -hmm. Or at at any rate, she was very close. Her best friend was Lillian Hellman, who Mm -hmm. I think was was at least a fellow traveler. Mm -hmm. And... About four years later, she called me and she said, okay, I did you a favor. Now, I'm going to ask you for a favor. My daughter, Paula, graduating from Columbia, and she wants to have a career in Hollywood. Could you help her find a job? And so I got Paula hired as a script reader at the agency that I was represented. And I swear, before I had a chance to even walk out of the office, she was my agent. (laughs) Then she ran a studio. I mean, she just kind of moved up in my life and then expanded her own life. And... That was in the 70s, and we've been really close ever since. And we have politics in common, and we have our children in common, and I'm the godmother of her daughter. And um, I don't know, you know, when you have enough time together, it really, it matters. I loved what she said in your film about you needing to present at the Oscars that year. And, you know, we're gonna, Vera Wang's going to make you a dress, and Sally Hirschberg is going to do your hair, and, and, and you were like, eh, I don't want to do it. You know, it's like, it's like Hollywood is not my place anymore. And she was just like, fuck you. You're going to get out there and do it. And then you got Monster-in-Law. And I think that this chapter of your acting career has been so interesting the fact that you are like now more relevant in your career and all the work that you're doing than ever is like the most important example women like me and all the women that are so much younger than me like need to see yeah it's just that you can't settle you have to you have to keep allowing yourself to grow you know you have to put yourself in situations that will allow you to encourage you to grow which isn't always easy it's inconvenient and sometimes hard to sort of put yourself in the way of those opportunities. Well, and not everybody can take four months off and go move to a different city and do fire drill Fridays every Friday. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of people could take a day and come there and join me and then go back home. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Everybody, just people have to do what they can. What is your best advice to, to, to people out there that want to somehow play a role in what's going to happen in November. It's important to know that every single vote matters more than you can possibly imagine. Every single person who's willing to volunteer, willing to walk precincts, willing to drive people to the polls. I'm thinking about canvassing. Canvassing. But then it doesn't end with the election. You've got to keep on because, you know, Look at the campaign that Obama ran. It was a brilliant campaign filled with hope and possibility. He built this mass movement, and then he got elected, and we thought, oh, good, we got a good guy in the White House, and we sat back, and we didn't force him 
to keep that momentum going. And he became, I mean, you know, he, he's great in so many ways, but he basically was just another l neoliberal mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, didn't change the banking system, didn't stand up to Wall Street, didn't get climate for, uh, you know, soon enough, didn't keep that movement that he built alive and well. So when he came back and said, hey, folks, help me, they were like, sorry, too late. We haven't heard from you for four years, yeah. you know. So we can't just vote and then that's it, especially now when the future depends on it. We have to vote and then hold their feet to the fire. Even if Trump gets reelected, God forbid, <laughs> I'm spitting on my fingers the way Jewish people do. We, 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 then we just have to be prepared to shut down the government. We have to be prepared to take over. People can rise up. It's called resistance. Yes. I mean, here, you just gave me a sweatshirt that says, Vive la résistance, the resistance. History shows that when enough people decide this is unacceptable and they rise up, they can change history. And that's what I'm trying to, along with all of the millions of people that are already out there longer than I have been, trying to build la résistance. Because we're gonna need it if we're gonna have a future. Yeah, it's not an event, it's a state of mind. Well, it's life, it's life. Exactly. You know, life doesn't end with one event of voting. You know, no matter how good they are, we, we have to force them. I mean, Obama's the perfect example here in California, Jerry Brown. So smart, so progressive, so great. Windmills and, and solar panels and environmentalism. And in the meantime, what we don't know is that he's signing all these new permits for oil drilling, yeah. you know, because we didn't force him. He, he asked us to. He said, make me do it. You know, in the 30s when the Great Depression happened and Roosevelt was, was our president. And people were so angry, and they were filling the streets by the millions. And they said, we need jobs. We need this. We need this. And he said to them, I agree with you. Now go out and make me do it. That's the key. We have to make them do it no matter who they are. OK, we're going to make them do it. We are going to make it. We have to. There's too much at stake. Jane Fonda, it has been one of the joys of my life talking to you today. Thank you so much for being on Unstyled so nice. today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I hope you're inspired after hearing Jane's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation by using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts. And please rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced by Chelsea Sanders with production assistance by Kate Spencer. Unstyled was edited by Anna Costanza and Alicia White. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. And we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruiz at Argo Studios and Gotham Podcast Studios. We'll be back soon for another Unstyled Conversation soon. And until then, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.